On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we look back to some of our past episodes where we focused on that niche between Africa, Silicon Valley, and tech. The people we interviewed, some amazing VCs, some amazing entrepreneurs, and leading experts in this area. Now, all this information, if it's new to you, you're going to learn a lot. If it's not, you're still going to learn. So right now, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Let's talk about that time with 22 different countries. That's that's amazing, especially someone here from the West. Most of us, to be honest, have never visited Africa and really don't know too much about the ecosystem there and even the individual countries. Going back, you worked for the Open Society for West Africa, which is the name of the Source Institute for West Africa. Can you talk about this experience? So I worked for a spinoff that was established by the Open Society. It was called the West African Institute for Civil Society. And I was the first CEO. And that was a really exciting job. In that job, I was overseeing 15 countries. Basically, if if you're familiar with the work of the Open Society, this happened at a time when a lot of West African countries were just coming out of war, protracted wars, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Ivory Coast. And so our organization was really focused on how do we create equitable societies? How do we open up spaces for normal, everyday African citizens to have their voices matter in societies that were predominantly dictatorial? And how do you build institutions of governance, the institutions of free press? I loved the job because I was often working with people at the ACON stages of their communities and helping them build structures that I'm really proud of have lasted, even though I've left that job over 10 years now. 22 countries throughout Africa. How is each area kind of different? What challenges did you encounter? So I think the first thing we're going to do after this interview is make sure you visit Africa, Sean. I think no matter how I describe it, I would not do it justice. Africa is it's extremely beautiful. Very, a lot of places are still unspoiled, but there's a lot of vibrancy then. The type of development that's happening in Africa is often from a place of survival. And so the innovations that are taking place across the continent are scrappy. They're very dogged. People have to make it. And, you know, when you see people come from nothing and then build something, it's always not only gratifying if it's work I'm involved in, but also inspiring for me to know that it's only a matter of time the continent is going to be the powerhouse that it should be. And then you also were a policy advisor for the UN. I worked as a strategic policy advisor for UN Nigeria. So I was teasing you before the interview saying that I'm a nerd, but it is true. I like to work with putting policies together because obviously if you're doing the work that we do, the government structures, the policy environment for implementing that work is very important. And so the UN brought me on in my personal capacity to help design strategic policies for Nigeria. So I designed a private sector policy for the UN for Nigeria. And that also dovetails into what I'm doing, working on how the private sector can invest in development and help with achieving the strategic sustainable development goals. And then I also designed a five-year policy for conflict prevention. 
you might wonder what's the link, but that's important because some parts of Nigeria are still experiencing intra-country conflicts and so investment can't take place, obviously. I'm really, really proud of that work as well because every time I see the UN doing anything in Nigeria, I think to myself, well, no one knows that I was part of putting that together. And so the work that we did is actually shaping government's interventions, the way government interacts with the UN. How is that private-public relationship with the UN and kind of the developing startup or the developing business ecosystem? That's such an excellent question. It was the reason why I was brought on board to develop the strategic policy framework, because if you're familiar with the history of the UN, the UN often comes into a country, partners with the government, mostly has its own funds, but until recently never really took advantage of the private sector in Africa to help with development. And so the private sector is a major beneficiary of peaceful communities, of a conducive environment for business. By and large, most of them were not involved in development. And so the strategy is about how to connect the UN with the private sector. Nigeria has a very, very vibrant private sector community. And so how do you create partnerships to make sure companies invest in the communities? That was what policy was. How is the a little bit more of the interaction, because I'm guessing even in the UN, the Mm -hmm. people there probably aren't familiar with the local ecosystem. Some of them are. So the local staff often are, but the most, the way the UN works is, so the head of the UN will be from another country and most of the senior staff. So those people have to learn about the country and they're often extremely good people, obviously for them to commit their lives, to leave their families and go to another country. And Nigeria is, I mean, everyone knows is a contradiction in many ways. It's very, very big. Also, it has tons of natural resources, massive human capital, but it also has difficult policy structures. And so if you want to do anything in Nigeria, you're often kind of like driving against a very, very strong wind. And that is what most people that come in have to deal with. But over the years, it has eased up a little. And so the policy framework that I designed was how do you work within the country to ensure that there's a synergy between the private sector's bottom line goals and development goals. One thing that really is interesting to me when I was doing research on Africa is the demographics, the youth. It's the youngest continent. The average age, I think, was 20. Less than 30. How is that going to affect the economy moving forward? On one hand, it presents a huge potential for innovation. And that's what's happening in the tech industry. It's mostly young people that have driven it. But it also, there are a lot of young people that don't have jobs, who graduate from university and have to sit around and that causes apathy. So if not properly handled, it is, as some of the policymakers have described it, a ticking time bomb where you just have so many energetic young people with nothing to do. And what then happens is they try to live the country. They try to, some of them would, Across Africa, you have situations of uh, illegal migrations. They get on these boats. I'm sure you've seen it in the news. Some of them die on the way. Some of them try to come to the U.S. by all means and things like that, because there's literally nothing to do. And I think understanding migration has often been a problem in how people look at Africa, because if the countries are well-functioning, if they're available jobs or the ability for young people to start businesses, the numbers of people who migrate illegally will reduce. So it's a vicious cycle. And obviously anybody, just like I read about and watch on the news of people who try to come to the U.S. from Mexico and other countries in South America, 
everyone essentially looks for a better life for themselves and their family. And I think that is something, the population of young people is something that anyone who is interested in Africa has to design interventions to address. Is that a problem though? Kind of maybe the best engineers, best entrepreneurs, even the country, is it kind of depleting maybe local resources for entrepreneur talent? It is, but this new wave, I mean, it's, I always say that Mark Zuckerberg came to Nigeria and he wasn't invited by the government. He came to Nigeria because of these young techie guys who are just in jeans and t-shirts and putting all sorts of amazing innovations together. And he had to come and see for himself. And so I thought that was really courageous of him because obviously it was a very new environment, but you can see that for a lot of young people who are talented, they're just taking the bull by the horns themselves and doing it. And oftentimes it's usually access to finance that keeps them away from realizing their dreams. Before I ask about the access to finance, you just mentioned Mark Zuckerberg visiting. How are the relationships right now between Silicon Valley and Africa? I think that was really something that was an injection to the ecosystem that was very encouraging. There are relationships that have been built one-on-one. For example, a lot of us come over here because we have partners here who invite us for things and all of that. But I think having VCs and tech companies, not as big, I mean, Facebook is in Nigeria, Google is in Nigeria, Microsoft has always been in Nigeria. I'm not talking about those type of companies. I'm just talking about the average tech investor here being curious enough to say, let me go and visit and see what's happening. And Every time, because I work with some of these entrepreneurs, they've all invested because one thing Nigeria has is the numbers. People have tried, people have said, well, let's start in Kenya. Let's go to Ghana. Yeah, these are much more stable countries. That is true. And, but in very short periods, they realize that, nah, you can't make as much money as you can in Nigeria. So we always just wait for them <laughs> to show up and they always then find their way to Nigeria and set up there. Do the entrepreneurs have access to banks, to VC funding? So all that is still in the embryonic phase. There are banks, big, huge banks, Nigerian banks all over Africa, but the average interest rate uh, for entrepreneurs is 23%. And that is stifling. So most people just don't bother. What then happens is a lot of entrepreneurs rely on these informal money lenders who are really charlatans who just basically take them to the bank and eventually they spend more than they would have ever spent going to the formal banks. So that has been the environment. But over the last few years, a new trend has emerged, which I'm sure someone will do excellent research on, which is the rise of indigenous funds, VC funds, private equity funds, impact funds, Mine is an impact fund. My firm has impact funds. And all that has introduced a new dynamic into the market where banks are saying, oh, yeah, now we have competition. And if anybody that wants to work in Africa has to look at how you introduce patient capital, because you're dealing with infrastructural issues as well, as well as the normal things that an entrepreneur will encounter, you have to deal with a limited or no electricity in many places where people have to work with generators. And so a business plan that doesn't include a generator, I never look at it because obviously that person hasn't thought about that problem. And so that is the environment. 
So when you see entrepreneurs make good on their business models and you really have to take your hat off to them because you know what they're dealing with on a daily basis. So when I was doing research for this episode today, I realized Africa, 54 countries, Mm -hmm. plus or minus two. Mm -hmm. The landmass is bigger than North America, Mm -hmm. Canada, Mexico, everything combined. But most of us kind of lump it all into one category. So what is the kind of the startup ecosystem like in Africa now? And is there areas or countries that are really developing that we should look at? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a common sentiment. People are just like, oh, I love Africa and Africa is cool. And then there's always just these thoughts of what what is supposed to be. Is it all safaris and, and dictators or like what is this continent like? And it is 54 different countries that are truly, truly different. Even, you know, Nigeria and Ghana, we argue with each other all the time. <laughs> We're next door neighbors. So when you look at it in terms of where money goes to in this in tech ecosystems, it's really four countries, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and Egypt. So those four countries combined get almost 80% or just over 80% of all of the funding on the continent period. And so then now you have the other 50 countries <laughs> vying for the remaining balance. And when you look at it, there's reasons why it makes sense, right? South Africa just being a bit more you know, developed in terms of like foreign and European influences in South Africa and that you just kind of like history there, right? And so that's where you look at what SA has done. When you look at Nigeria, obviously is the most populous country on the continent. It's the fifth most populous in the world with 200 million people. And so pretty much think about what you can sell to 200 million people. Like that is a huge market for anything. If you make it in Nigeria, you can kind of make it anywhere. Going into Kenya, it's actually a huge bed for a lot of repatriates, people that think about and like expats, repats to think about, oh, I want to build something in Africa because there's some policies in East Africa that are a bit more friendly. There's an environment that is, is a little bit easier to do business in. And there's also 50 million people in Kenya as well. So again, another huge population to kind of test things out with. And then when you look at Egypt, it's kind of that link to the Middle East. So a lot of North African companies, they build something in Egypt and they have available market across North Africa and going into, into the Middle East. So these are all kinds of the main four markets, but there's been a lot of attention given to Francophone Africa lately. There are Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, and these other countries now that are saying, hey, we would like to grow and do a bit more here. How can we take advantage of that and, and use technology to kind of really push us ahead? But it's still definitely not true, like Pan-African in every region ecosystem. It's really still concentrated in four countries. So those four countries, I mean, Nigeria, 200 million people you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. When companies there want to expand, do they, after they expand their home country, do they then have to go to another continent or are they expanding to the other countries in Africa? What does an expansion look like? Yeah, I've seen kind of both cases and I'm a huge fan of expanding beyond the continent because what we're solving for a lot of times are problems that are very similar in other frontier markets. So there's no reason to limit that to the continent. And if you're thinking about, let's say you get investor money and all of those things, you just minimize your risk, right? Like by making sure you expand across multiple regions. So we've seen Nigerian companies that a lot of them go to LATAM. So Brazil is a market and then also, you know, going into like Indonesia and like stuff like that and saying, okay, how can I do things in these other like Asian markets? Not China, but every other every other Asian because the Chinese are the ones coming to us. But you know, all these other Asian markets are like other viable ones to kind of say, okay, how do I test this out and expand in the Middle East as well? But what we've seen as most common in the past was going next to Ghana. Ghana is always the next easiest one. Language is the same. It's literally across the border. 
very similar kind of backgrounds. And then people want to go to East Africa and go right to Kenya, Uganda, or Rwanda. A lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa, they don't expand really into South Africa or to North Africa. And South Africans, they definitely go to Europe. So a lot of things that work in South Africa don't really work elsewhere outside of Africa because their infrastructure and their systems are just different versus SSA is sort of similar. So when you're doing that analysis, a lot like South Africa may not be the most viable market. So you may do other countries in SSA and then go to LATAM or like Indonesia, Malaysia. Can you talk more about the infrastructure of these countries? So over... I think the number was like one in four people in the world without access to power is a Nigerian, right? Which is psychotic. I think we were, you know, we're on the call last week. I was like, yeah, my generator is on outside. Like I'm literally my own power generator, my own water, like just, you know, my own water company. I'm like my own everything. The infrastructure. So 66% of Sub-Saharan Africa doesn't have access to grid power. Now that means people are saying, yes, I can't just move into an apartment and then turn on and the lights work and I pay my bill. But there's so much opportunity on the other side of that too, right? Like we have the world's like largest surface for solar. And but so you have, well, is this you can go ahead and cultivate that? Like if it's cultivated properly, it could power huge parts of the world, not just the continent. We have huge availability for like for hydro and all kinds of other things, other power sources, renewable energy sources, but it requires a ton of money that has not been invested so far. You know, even just the Nigerian grid infrastructure requires billions of dollars. I think the number was closer to 20 billion, just to even stabilize the current infrastructure before we're talking about like increasing access of that across the continent versus places like Ghana has stable electricity now, but it's tiny. It's a fraction of Nigeria. There's other great countries like Rwanda, et cetera. But again, Rwanda as an entire country is like half of Lagos, which is one city in Nigeria. So you now start looking at those infrastructure challenges. So, yeah, so just even just from the basic there, the more naval environment is in East Africa or is in South Africa. Hence why those were easier places to kind of start companies and businesses. But why I also said if you make it in Nigeria, which has all these challenges, you would literally be able to dominate elsewhere. Now, can you talk about some more of these challenges that entrepreneurs might face in Nigeria or other parts of Africa? Yeah. So a huge one is, you know, regulation. I'm always on my little campaign or slash crusade against (laughs) the government saying that I actually just need three things from you. I need identification. I need infrastructure and I need regulation. So from an identification perspective here, we don't think anything of being born and having a social security number that literally is with us through our entire existence. There is no like sole form of national ID across Nigeria and across a lot of different African countries. There have been initiatives to go and like try to identify everybody, but literally like at birth, especially in rural places, no one's giving children IDs. So this 200 million number is our people that are studying it. They're going around counting, but do we actually know 100%? No, we don't because there is no national form of ID. The closest thing we've been able to see has been like a bank verification number, for example, but that leaves only the 50% of the country that's banked. Again, another assumption based on, based on these numbers, you don't really have viable data. We now go into infrastructure. Again, we've talked to power and water and what all of that just means. Even roads talk about access to markets. Our lovely Nigerian government decided it was wise to close the ports, the borders, like for the last couple of weeks saying, oh, people are importing too much foreign food. Well, that's just made prices go up in the country, which is really dumb. And the ports have been backed up for several weeks. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, I was building out my new office, like our chairs and some furniture is stuck at the ports right now. Like we don't even know when we're going to get them out because these are just major issues. Like here you can ship, receive things without blinking. 
in night for Nigerians and a lot of Africans, like our mailing system is who's going to Nigeria on this day, right? And you're sending packages to them and arranging delivery. So infrastructure is a huge, huge thing. Think about as a business person, how do you get your products to market? How do you get your products to other country if you don't have infrastructure that's reliable? And then the the last one to talk about is regulation. So a lot of our policies are extremely out of date and then others are not made with really sound data. So for take FinTech, which has received the largest amount of funding on the continent over the last four years, but the regulation guiding a lot of FinTechs is the same regulation that was driving financial institutions. So literally they're saying, oh, you need to hold deposits at the central bank of $10 million. And you're like, I'm a FinTech. Like, where did I even get $10 million just to store at the central bank to be able to process? But they haven't come up with anything that's separate for just FinTechs. So all of these rules are still super archaic. And then you have to work ways around them. So let's say it tells you get a license in Lagos State. Technically, that fintech cannot open any offices in any other states. It's digital. So they can have people download their app, all, all 30 states in Nigeria, but they can't have physical offices because it breaks the law. But this doesn't make sense. And so we think about just that, like regulation across our different countries. Great examples. If I want to send money to Kenya, Kenya shilling, I have to change my Naira to dollars and change from dollars to shilling. So these are now things that you're like, how my currency is unstable. Like it doesn't make transfers easy. There's so many opportunities from that, but it's also just a ton of problems when you go to identification, infrastructure and regulation. How is the government in Nigeria wanting to work with startups or how are things changing to be more, I want to say startup friendly, or is that not happening? In their mind, it's happening. And there's good examples in rest of Africa. But I don't think that it's happening fast enough or well enough. Good examples would be, you know, Kagame in Rwanda. So he has an entire team that they call like it's called it used to call Rwanda online. It's called Irambo. So it's run now by a lady named Faith Keza. She's actually an MIT grad, ex-Googler, and she's super young. Faith is not even up to 30 yet. And she runs the IT company for the government. So they process their visa on arrival. They process like everything that is run, like trying to digitize as much using technology for the entire Rwandese government, like Rwandan government. And she runs that. And so they're really big on innovation, working with these companies. How do they make exports easier? How do they actually truly make all of these things better? On the other side, you now have wonderful governments like in Nigeria, where our leaders are all like 80 something years old. And their idea of technology is like, oh, we took this, we wrote on Twitter and like, that's technology. And you're like, that's not really helpful (laughs) to me that you responded to something on Twitter. And when the tech ecosystem people, they'll say, come, let's have a meeting. It's always having a meeting. I guess that's government in general wanting to have a lot of meetings. But then output of that is not something that's super concrete as far as I'm concerned. So, oh, we're going to launch an innovation fund and they'll put like a million dollars. I'm like, what do you want me to do with a million dollars? Give it to one company and then say that you've done all kinds of things. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to solve around climate change and power and this and this and this. And we have $500,000 to do it. Seriously, like it actually doesn't make any sense. You're not actually putting capital behind it. But on the other side, which is now just even more dangerous, we've seen policies that are not even startup friendly at all. So for it to, to talk about that, traffic in Nigeria is hideous, right? You can literally be going a mile and be in traffic for three hours. And so <laughs> I know you think it's bad here, but I promise you it's nothing compared like Nigeria, like Lagos and Nairobi are just like different, different beasts. And so all of these like ride hailing bikes, like motorcycles came up. So one of them, Maxwell NG, they pioneered it. They're one of my portfolio companies. They went and they like 
talk to the government and how do they get this thing passed? So they basically were first they were moving like packages, decided to move people. So literally Uber model requested, get a motorcycle, go from place to place, weave in and out of traffic, all of those things, made sure it was safe. As they started going and other competitors start coming to the market and then the government starts being like, hmm, looks like these guys are making money. They now start arresting a bunch of their drivers start extorting them for all kinds of money. And so now they go from having like, oh, just like a normal license that was maybe like a dollar a month to being like, you have to now pay thousands of dollars for these bikes every month just so we can increase our revenue. I was like, but they're solving the traffic that you fail to solve because you have bad roads and not enough of them. And so now you want to now take money from them. And they also see all these fintechs making payments and stuff easier. They now increase the basically they're trying to like double taxation on it and say, oh, we want these taxes. We want all these other things on online payments. But we literally are finding ways to innovate around things that you did that are archaic. But now you're seeing it as a source of revenue. So rather than you growing your tax base, rather than you spending time to actually bring more people into your tax base and bring more people into the bank population, you're just going to keep honing down on the companies that are already there and trying to do something good and taxing them to bits, which doesn't make sense. You'd mentioned a company raised VC funding specifically for coming to the U.S. to set up operations. How much funding is available for these startups? Is it mostly just VCs or are there a lot of individuals investing in companies or is it government investment? Where is some of the money coming from to start these companies? Well, like here, there is a mix of funding sources. There are angel networks, although they're not nearly as robust as they are here and in Europe. It hasn't emerged yet. There's not enough precedent. Bit of a catch-22. How do you demonstrate to medium or high net worth individuals that these are risks worth taking until enough people have taken that risk? So the angel networks are pretty weak. Been my experience. I'm sure others have, have other experience that might uh, countermand that. I think on the venture side, there are some very successful funds. Knife Capital is a very well-known one. We work with a couple, Kalon Ventures and IDF Capital, that are run by very, very accomplished, very dynamic GPs. And they've got great portfolios. And we're, we're really pleased that they think enough of us to work with us and to provide useful guidance to their companies. We also think that we can do a lot to channel resources from here, whether virtually or when they come here in person, to put them in front of investors to show opportunities that are worth pursuing. I'd say venture is probably the most common source of money. There is government money, but like governments everywhere, it takes forever to get. Comes with lots of strings. Usually there's a timeline mismatch. A startup needs money in the next three months. And the first round of applications take three months just to get going. So I think there's, like most places, governments are not really suited to the needs of startups and companies that might be in growth mode. It's just, there's just a mismatch there. At the top end of the scale, private equity money has had a bit of a field day in Africa. There was a story last week about some nightmare stories, private equity firms from the West, the US and Europe coming into Africa and just taking advantage of companies there, gutting them, saddling them with debt. And then, well, good luck. It's not the only place that happens. And I'm no expert on the topic. I think it's always buyer beware or seller beware. If you get an offer that seems too good to be true, it almost certainly is, whether you're in South Africa or South Carolina. And I think that's, there's a lot of good lessons from looking at the trends in investment from different sources over the years. But it's still early days in the African investment scene. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. What about with nonprofits? Is that a way to get money for these companies? Here, of course, nonprofits are highly regulated. So it's, that's a different kettle of fish. Down there, there's lots of aid money available, and that might be maybe indirectly convertible into some kind of play or some kind of resource base to grow a startup. You know, there's lots of things to help with prenatal care and child vaccinations and basic infrastructure, light and water and things like electricity, things that haven't really evolved there the way they have here. I would guess that the nonprofit landscape, the aid, whether it's aid from private organizations or governments, 
or you, you know, USAID or the Gates Foundation, the bigger philanthropies that specialize in emerging markets. It's going to be a pretty broad spectrum of access, simplicity of access to that money, but I probably wouldn't count on it. Again, I'm guessing the turnaround time from application to receipt of funds is too long for most startups to tolerate. I would wonder what the screening process would be like as well, the nonprofits, because if it is not right, really that regulated, I'm kind of curious how they would make their decision. Well, I've worked with several nonprofits over the years in the emerging markets, although never in Africa. What we always found is that promises of accountability, actual accountability, there's often a gap between the two. They just don't have either the, maybe the habits or the infrastructure there to track the money the way it's expected here. You know, an American nonprofit that raises money from the Gates Foundation understands the stringent rules that apply to that money, how it's going to be used and how it's going to be accounted for. That's just harder to do. Remote area of a, of a giant African country where there's little communication. It's just harder. I give credit to any philanthropy that takes a risk on part of the world where they can't expect the same type of treatment of their money. You know, I give them credit for taking a risk. That's just the way the world works, right? Can't have everything everywhere. If conditions in Africa were the same as they're here in the US, it'd be a much different world. Africa is up and coming, make no mistake. There is no doubt. Lots of opportunity. Then how does one of these startups obtain resources, the resources that they need? I mean, it sounds like it's just kind of difficult overall. <laughs> I would say that I've met, I've met people who are absolute masters of bootstrap. I mean, they really make the most of very little resource. Uh, so they're good at that. And that's, that goes a long way in any startup. You know, bootstrapping is a fundamental element of any early stage company, no matter where you are, certainly. I don't know enough of them. Their, their stories well enough to say that friends and family is, plays a bigger part or that maybe there are angel networks, but they're just not publicized. Therefore, we don't know about them. And I don't know the number. I don't know the numbers in terms of, say, university graduates in engineering and computer science translates into X number of startups around those technology areas as it would be around here because you Stanford and Cal and all sorts of other things that crank out lots of people who have access to lots of resources. Again, it's that notion that talent doesn't respect area codes, but opportunity does. And you just don't have the opportunities there that you have here. I'd be curious to see someone's brought that data together, I'm sure of it. So I'd be interested to see. That's part of our learning curve too. I mean, we're still on a very, very steep learning curve. We're open to anything that changes the viewpoint we have, because we know that being so early in the game, that we, we have a lot to learn. But we also know the people we've met and the opportunities we've seen certainly justify more of the same. We feel no, we're not intimidated at all by the strangeness of Africa as a whole in the way businesses are run there and the way they're grown as compared to what we're used to here. So with everything you mentioned or something that wasn't even mentioned, if you could change anything which would increase opportunities for startups, what would it be? I think that the common answer, the common response to something like this would be to say, you know, to give startups more funding. But for me, at least that, that feels like a, a bit of a short-term fix. I think if you think about investing, like the reason you invest is to get a return on your money. Even if you're doing impact investing, ultimately, you want to be getting some type of yeah, return on your money, which means the business gets paid, which means there is some underlying purchase or consumption of goods or services that's happening. So the short answer is, I'd say, things that stimulate local demand. Yeah, a very straightforward way of doing this is direct, direct cash transfers. Um, so we've seen one of the big, the largest UBI, universal basic income experiments is happening in Western Kenya at the moment. So yeah, we'll sort of see what are the results of that, things that are going to stimulate demand. Another way is getting more international firms buying from Africa. That will then hopefully allow the money to sort of trickle down into the, into the hands of employees of those companies who then become consumers. The more they start consuming, the money circulates around the economy. And then suddenly demand for 
ancillary services begins to spring up as well. The two main ways that I could see. And what about the different business models in Africa? Could you go into a little bit of detail about those? Can you go into if someone from the West wanted to go into Africa and set up operations of business, best way to go about doing that? I'm really curious from that entrepreneur's point of view and your journey. Often when people are thinking about doing, doing business in Africa, who's been in there purely for the financial potential financial reward that might come from it, often there's something else which is, which is at play. The two main things that people might go into it is to provide a product or service that isn't currently being used that they think should be. So for example, this could be electricity in rural homes or education or affordable transport or transit or, or something where there is a, a local product or service that's being missing. And I think the, the other motivation is to improve the livelihoods of people li- living there. Now, sometimes that is done by having access to electricity, but also it can, be, it can be done by giving people an income. A big distinction that I like to think about is where is the supply and where is the demand? Because when most people think about doing business in Africa, they're talking about the demand. So they're saying, okay, how can we create products and services that are going to be for the next billion consumers? This is okay, but it means you, there's, there's typically there's going to be a long lag where you might not have, or you almost certainly won't have good revenue coming into the business. If you're looking at you know, profit and loss, you know, there's not going to be a lot of top-line revenue coming into the business. And hence, you're going to need to have long-term investors who are willing to plug the gap and keep things going, or the business goes bust. Personally, I'm more interested in the improve the livelihoods of people living there through giving people an income. And so I like Western demand and local supply. For me, like the number one impact thing you can do is to give people, give lots of people a steady income. And that way they can buy more things. It's a local demand. And that sort of you know, it helps the local economy, but also it means people can buy medical services and, and lots of things there. When I was in Kenya, I was working for a, a B2B company where I was selling internationally. So I sort of sold in eight different African countries and combination of European and US companies. It is so much easier, as I'm sure you can, it doesn't take too much logic to, to get to this uh, conclusion. It's so much easier if you can pitch your client, you pitch your business to Western clients who are going to be fine paying $20,000 for a service. Because to get an equivalent amount of revenue locally, it's possible, but it's a lot, lot harder. I therefore like to sort of decouple these two ideas of, are you there to provide a local... Are you having local demand? Are you trying to do it locally? If the main thing you want is to increase the incomes, go and sell elsewhere in the world and then funnel that money back into East Africa, well, into Africa in whichever way seems best, either through employing local people or through buying from local suppliers or anything that can be getting international money into, into the economy. So that's sort of generally how I think about business models. Yeah, the one If you're able to run a business where you can start having clients that pay $20,000, you can do that from day one. And you don't need investors. And you can still be paying a lot of people in East Africa a lot of good money to do that. And it's a sort of slightly quicker way of, of getting things going. In terms of thinking about what types of entrepreneurs or people well-placed to run a business in Africa, I think the ones that I can sort of see succeeding have a combination of long-term horizon, they have on-the-ground expertise, and also they have an international worldview. All these points are, are flexible. And, but I think if you can find some category of people or person who has the, an overlap with those three, that's really good. If we sort of think through this logically, first set of people you might think about are, are expats. So people who, like myself, grew up in the UK or grew up in America or Europe, 
don't particularly have any roots in Africa, but I'm very interested in sort of being part of the development and seeing what I can do. So, you know, for me, I've, I've got the international worldview. I've lived in different places. It's possible to get the expertise by partnering with people on the ground. But often there's not a willingness to save, let's say, for 10 years. You're probably going to need to commit to 10 years living on the ground in Africa in order to have a, a long term. So sort of expats are good, but they, there's a sense of sort of coming in and going, which again, it's, it's not bad. It's good to get those sort of injections of insights, but it's not necessarily sort of a long-term solution. You then might look at purely local teams. So here people have got the long-term horizon because they live there uh, and they have the on-the-ground expertise. But sometimes it can be difficult to have the international perspective. Now, of course, this can be addressed by somebody from the country going and studying abroad. That's often enough to get an international worldview or to some degree consuming content online. But there is just the sort of reality is from speaking to different companies, it would be very obvious when there is somebody there who has had the international worldview and just how different businesses operate compared to somebody who's just sort of thinking in, in local terms. The category that I think is probably most exciting is a diaspora. So a lot of people I know have, for example, family ties in Africa, but grew up in the UK or elsewhere. And, and often they want to invest back home. So if you sort of, this is typically, I don't know, maybe second generation in the case of the UK, you know, went to UK schools or moved when they were a kid, but they've still got, you know, aunties and uncles and grandparents who live back in, in East Africa or in Africa. So I think here what's great is you have this, this international perspective. There's often this long-term horizon because ultimately a lot of people want to, to sort of go back and help develop the, the home country. And often they've got good connections to people on the ground to make it happen. One trend which I really hope to see more and more of is people is diaspora or which, which way you want to define it. But you know, people who have roots in Africa, but have been living abroad and are looking to use their wealth and insights and opportunities in a way that can develop businesses and to develop the economy. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.